Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning, folks, and uh, welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul from La Quinta, California, in the low desert where the Sonoran Desert and the Mojave Desert come together. And uh, or it rained yesterday, which is a rare occurrence. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm really uh, looking forward to this class. We're going to define consciousness with two different models. The layers or levels of consciousness will be one model, and the states in which they express themselves, another model. And in both cases, they are four bullet points. The uh, layers or levels of consciousness are four in number, and the states in which consciousness or awareness expresses itself are four in number in terms of brain waves. <laughs> There's a way you could look at it as three. But uh, we'll get to that soon. And what is consciousness? Well, in advance of our opening meditation here, let me just say it's awareness, it's intelligence, it's insight and understanding, it's comprehension, and it also has uh, values and ethics enfolded within it. So consciousness is a lot. It's a big word. It's uh, not used as often as it should be, perhaps. And when it is, we think in very simple terms of being either unconscious, like asleep or in a coma, or consciously awake, aware, and responsive. But as you'll find out today, there's more to it than that, as you probably suspected. And I have a math problem, a fun little, well, it's not a problem, a fun little, uh, in fact, it's not even math, it's just simple arithmetic, but it's a fun little uh, enigmatic puzzle that uh, you may want to share with your friends. It's a bit of a brain teaser, and I'll use it to demonstrate a, a phenomenon of consciousness. So we have all that in store, our opening meditation, and uh, at the end of the class today, at about noon or uh, soon thereafter, maybe noon 10 or so, we'll go to the Q&A. So what I'd suggest is if at any time during the class a question pops into your mind, put it in the chat box then. Put it in the chat box right away while you're thinking about it. And um, then when we get to the Q&A part and Melinda reads these, We'll give you an option to unmute if you wish and go further, or I'll just respond to the question as, as stated in the chat box. So let's do an opening med. What do you say? Opening meditation, opening focus. So I want you to get comfortable in your chairs. Sit up. Don't slouch. 
too, feeling a gentle floating up feeling, like a helium balloon floating slowly into the sky, floating upward toward the waking state. Three, open your eyes wide awake, wide awake now, eyes open, back in the room, feeling fine, refreshed and rested, much better than before, feeling better than before. Good. Welcome back. The only element I left out of that meditation when it comes to mindfulness, and we'll talk more about this in the future, is non-judgment. And that's a huge area, non-judgment. But mindfulness is basically to sit in the present moment, to consider the full reality of the present moment without any judging like we were talking uh, just a few minutes ago, or I, was, I, I mentioned that it rained here. Uh, depending on my mood and my attitudes and my beliefs and my intentions, I might have said, whoopee, oh boy, it's raining. It's a desert. It never rains here. We really need this rain. Yippee-io. And somebody else who was planning to go outside or maybe just wash the car, you know, or wanted to go for a picnic, they might be brought down by the rain, and so they judge the rain as a bad thing. Oh no, damn it, it rained. But the rain, the rain is the rain. There's no benefit in judging it as good or bad. And how many other things in our lives do we insist on judging as right or wrong or good or bad when we really have no idea of the full scope of the consequences or the reasons for things to be. And the challenge of accepting, especially Westerners, Europeans and Americans, we think that acceptance is the end of things. That acceptance means surrender, give up, throw in the towel. And it doesn't. Acceptance is not the end of things. Acceptance is where you begin Acceptance is to acknowledge reality, the here and now. It is what it is. And I can't tell you how much grief that will spare you <laughs> in the long run when you learn to accept reality and acknowledge it. There's a story of a monk who was, um, have I told this story? I'm not sure. There's is a story of a monk that was admiring a fine crystal goblet, beautiful, hand-blown crystal. And it was hundreds of years old, and it was obviously crafted by a, a magnificent glassblower, an artesian who certainly knew what he or she was doing. And the monk is holding it up to the light and looking at the way the the light dances through it in the different colors that come off the, this fine piece of uh, glassware. And then accidentally he drops it and it shatters in a million pieces. And being a monk, he said, of course. This is accepting the law of impermanence, <laughs> which is when it comes to accepting one of the big ones. Nothing lasts, everything passes. But that's, you know, we would blame ourselves, wouldn't we? We'd begin to de 
demean ourselves and say, oh, I'm so clumsy. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I feel so guilty. Can I pay you for this? Oh, it's irreplaceable. Money won't replace it. Well, maybe it doesn't need to be replaced. Maybe it just lived its life. You see, my mother used to say again and again, I've heard her voice echoing in my mind throughout my life. For all the truly wise things she said, here was one that I had a big problem with. And she said, if you take care of this, Michael, whatever it was, if you take care of this, it'll last forever. No, it's not true. <laughs> it's, it's just not true. So accepting the impermanence of things is a big part of mindfulness, isn't it? To live in the present moment. Today, we're going to talk about consciousness as that awareness. Consciousness and awareness are essentially uh, interchangeable words. They're, they're synonyms for each other, right? And if I had to go to a third word, I'd probably go to understanding that awareness and consciousness means understanding. But it's even more than that. I've attempted to make lists of the qualities of consciousness. Uh, it's got to be a very long list. And then it just started to lose its meaning. And I realized consciousness is everything. Consciousness is the only thing. Consciousness is reality. Nothing is more fundamental to our existence than our awareness of it. It's the one thing you cannot get behind. You can get behind your thoughts, can't you? And, and why am I thinking along these lines? Oh, well, this is a pattern. I always think this way. Well, why? Where did I learn to do that? Oh, I, because when I was 14, this happened. And uh, I was scarred and traumatized by it. And, you know, I've never really trusted anybody since then. Or it could be one of a million other stories. But why do I think the way I think? Consciousness. Somebody asked me once the difference between consciousness and intelligence. This was back in the early 80s. And I was on the radio in the middle of the night. And it just got thrown at me. I thought, oh my God, what a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. <laughs> I was really on the spot. Hey, Michael, what's the difference between consciousness and intelligence? And uh, I took a breath and I relaxed and heard myself say, I mean, I was speaking stream of consciousness, so to speak. So it's not like I thought this through and then said it. I was live on the radio. <laughs> I didn't have time to do that. So as I was becoming aware of it, my response, I was speaking it in the moment. And I heard myself say, uh, an example would be inventing and building a nuclear weapon. It takes great intelligence to do such a thing, but a conscious person would never be part of such a project. Mass murder on an unbelievable scale, vaporizing hundreds of thousands of innocent non-combatants in an instant. 
uh, risking thermonuclear chain reaction fallout that we don't understand. It's just un unconscionable that human beings would build such a thing and use it, not once but twice. And people say, well, it was done to end the war. Yeah, well, it could have been demonstrated uh, 10 miles high and not done very much damage other than the fallout. It could have been demonstrated in a way that, look, we have this horrible weapon. We're going to use it if you don't comply and, and surrender. But no, we brought it down low. A conscious person could not participate in that though they might be very intelligent. So finding synonyms for consciousness or awareness, like understanding or intelligence, is difficult. And even the two words, depending on who you ask, are slightly different. And so this is where we begin to talk today about the layers or levels of consciousness. And I'm going to work backwards, so to speak, saying that the outermost layer, we'll start outside and work inside, the outermost layer of consciousness is the mind, our ability to think, our ability to feel, our ability to consider an action and initiate it, though the tendency is often to be reflexive and to react with very little thought. Depends on the situation, of course. But that's the outer layer or level of consciousness is the mind, the human mind. This is Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. I can read. I can write. I can cipher. I can use numbers, geometry, trigonometry, calculus. <laughs> that rocket ship they sent up a couple of years ago to hit the asteroid, see if they could nudge it out of the orbit, just in case one was ever headed our way. Could we do that? They had to shoot a rocket, uh, what was it, a year and a half in advance, at a point where the asteroid would then be, not where it is now. And the calculus involved in that, the math, to be able to fly by, what was the planet? We've flown by all of the planets, including Pluto. It's just unbelievable to see film on your living room television of a flyby over Pluto. It's just in our lifetimes. So the ability to think, to read, to write, to use numbers and higher math, it's just to build computers, to, to build automobiles and rocket ships and boats and planes, is just extraordinary. There is a deeper level of consciousness below thought and feeling, and that's sense and sensation. So the next level of consciousness, the third level, so to speak, is uh, the senses we talked about earlier, my ability to see uh, when my eyes are open, my ability to hear, to, to taste, smell, and touch, as well as uh, awareness of what's going on inside my body. Gee, I'm hungry. Gosh, I'm so tired. 
forgive me, I got to visit the restroom. How do you know these things? That's a sense. I'll ask Melinda later the term for that. Procipiation or something. She'll know. Melinda, remind me to ask you that later. And um, so this is the third level of consciousness, our sense and sensation. Going deeper, the second level of consciousness, you may find the most strange. And this is the store. It's called a store. Um, Think of it as a warehouse. This is the level, now you're going to have to stretch a little bit with me. This is where forms and qualities, ethics and values live. Again, it's like a warehouse. This is where the form that you call tree in English. That's a tree. It's very different than this this fir tree is very different than this palm tree, very different than this oak tree, very different than this birch tree, this bamboo. Oh, the bamboo is not a tree. The bamboo is grass. And then we have different kinds of grasses. And so it is with everything that we've labeled and named. Not only the forms, but the quality. Water is wet, and it freezes at 32 degrees. Laws of physics, for example, are in this store. It freezes at 32 degrees on a scale called Fahrenheit zero Celsius. It boils at 212 Fahrenheit 100 Celsius centigrade. Um, The qualities of, of fire, the various elements of the periodic table, these things exist as qualities or How can I say this? Uh, It's like the skeleton upon which reality is hung or the scaffolding upon which physical dense is built. And these are names and forms that exist in the second level of consciousness, the warehouse or the store. Our values are in here, our ethics, our conscience, our decision that This is noble, this is wholesome, this is good. What's that based on? Or that this is horrible, that's that's wicked, that's evil, you should never do that. Uh, That's against the laws of nature and man. That's contrary to all that is good and true and beautiful. Says who? I mean, sure, there's a lot of room for disagreement, but still there is a consensus. You won't find very many people that think that random shooting or killing of other people is okay. Some people might say, well, I'm opposed to murder, but we got to have war and capital punishment, I think, is a good thing. Well, so people will disagree. But then there are those things upon which people do not disagree that everybody finds absolutely abhorrent or, on the other hand, exceedingly beautiful and and worthy. 
and valuable and wonderful. And so this larger consensus is part of this. I mean, this is everything. This is the the blueprints, so to speak, of physical dense reality, or as I said, the skeleton or scaffolding. Think of a Christmas tree. That's all nicely decorated, and it's got all the Christmas lights on it, and it's got the bulbs and the ornaments on it. And uh, gosh, back in the day, we used to do those uh, icicles, those semi-metallic, shiny, silvery icicles. <laughs> or I remember as a kid making uh, uh, popcorn and cranberry strands that we would hang on the tree. Then you'd put a bird or an angel on the top of the tree. Well, underneath all of that is just a green fir tree, right? But when you see the Christmas tree all decorated, you tend to forget about just that green tree that somebody chopped down in a forest or more likely a Christmas tree plantation <laughs> and then sold you to take home and decorate. So underneath the substance of physical dense things, there has to be some sort of design. Why do humans all look basically the same with, you know, a torso that has a head on top of it and these four other appendages, arms and legs sticking out of it? Who decided on that shape, right? How did that evolve from the, uh, from the microbes? single-cell life, the more complex structures. It's pretty fascinating stuff. All those forms would exist in the second level of consciousness, the store or the warehouse. And then the first level is Brahman. And what I mean by that is God, Allah, the Great Spirit, the Creator, the Source, the Absolute, the Godhead, the prime mover, the first cause. Do you want more? <laughs> you sort of get the idea. This is the most fundamental level of consciousness. And it's generally thought of in the literature, and this is a little contradictory, uh, but I think merits some reflection. This level, in terms of appearance, is a void, a unbelievably dark blackness that shines brightly. If you can imagine inky blackness shining brightly, granted it's a apparent contradiction, but sit with it for a minute. The ancient rishis from time out of mind said this. Many uh, NDE people you know, near-death experience people talk about at some point in their near-death experience witnessing this void, this inky blackness that shines so brightly that attempting to look at it is like staring at the sun, except it's all black. Evan Alexander talks about this in his book, about his near-death experience called Proof of Heaven, this is a neurosurgeon. His father was a Harvard-educated neurosurgeon. He is a Harvard-educated neurosurgeon. 
he got a bacterial infection that ate away the cortex of his brain. And he was in a coma for seven days. And when he came back, unable to speak, unable to move, unable to recognize anybody, even his family, unable to identify himself, it took months and months for all of that to begin to return slowly, even his ability to speak. And then he began to recount his experience during that seven days, which to him was a hundred years. I mean, he said he couldn't believe it was only seven days given what he went through. And, um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of fascinating people in my life in 50 plus years of radio. He's at the top. He's, he's got to be, I mean, just so intelligent, so well-educated and, uh, then having had to face this experience and, and the, the reality of the experience that he knew was not a dream. By a neurosurgeon, somebody who really knows the brain and the spine really, really well, who understands the neurons and who, like most other empirical scientists, had assumed that consciousness was a byproduct of brain chemistry. And he now knows that's just absurd, that uh, the brain is a product, like all physical things, of consciousness. All physical things exist in consciousness. Consciousness is primary. Awareness, consciousness, is fundamental to existence. The brain doesn't create consciousness. Consciousness creates everything. So, we want to understand it, right? So, these are the four levels. Now, when we talk about Advaita Vedanta, and I've touched on it, again, promising to speak more on non-duality in the future, I'm pretty sure that most of you are familiar with the concept, though not found in the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, it is found everywhere else in the religions of the East and in the mystical traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We see this understanding that ultimately, spiritually, consciousness is non-differentiated. Consciousness is whole. It's one. It's not just one God separate, living outside its creation, there's only one thing. Only one thing happening here. And it is imminent and transcendent. That one thing, consciousness, awareness, is in all things. Imminent. Not imminent, like about to happen, but immanent, meaning inherent or innate. Consciousness, awareness, is also transcendent, meaning every seemingly separated thing is within this unified field, this energy, magnetic energy field called the universe. So the one is in everything and everything is in the one. That's panentheism, as we discussed a few months ago. 
imminent and transcendent. Now, that creates a bit of a puzzle. Because here we are living in a world that we perceive through the third and fourth levels of consciousness, our sense and sensation, the third level, the mind, what we think and feel on the fourth outermost level, and all these separated objects that rise out of non-duality. How could that be? How can the one create the many without being less than it was? How can the one manifest all these different forms without being diminished? See? How does the creator create all of this and not be less than as a result, or at least tired or used up somehow? How does non-duality give rise to dualism? Gender, yin and yang, positive and negative, good and bad, right and wrong, winners and losers, Republicans and Democrats, communism and capitalism. Aren't you just sick of the simplicity of dualism? And there's a wonderful little story that I'm going to share with you today, a kind of a simple arithmetic problem that helps to illustrate this. And um, you may want to share this with your friends. You know that old saying, he who teaches or she who teaches learns twice. The teacher learns twice. So it's fun to share this with other people. So the story comes out of Eastern philosophy that there was a king who had three sons. And as he got older and knew he was going to leave his kingdom to his sons, he gathered them together, a family meeting, and he said to the oldest son, to you I shall give half of my kingdom. To the second son he said, to you I will give one-third of my kingdom. And to the third son he said, and to you, my boy, you will receive one-ninth of the kingdom. One-half to the oldest son, one-third to the middle boy, one-ninth to the third son. Well, as uh, time went on and the king passes away, the boys get together and they're going to divvy up the kingdom, but though things go, for the most part, rather smoothly, the king has 17 elephants. And they say, what are we going to do? Because I can't divide 17 in half. And the middle boy says, well, I, I, I don't, how do I get a third of 17 elephants? And the third boy, the youngest, said, well, I'm in the same dilemma. I can't get one-ninth of 17. 17 is not divisible by two, three, or nine. So what are we going to do? But they had a friend, a wise man, who lived up the road. And he said, I'll give you an elephant. I have an elephant that I will loan you. They didn't know exactly what that meant. So he brought the 18th elephant by one afternoon. And the three boys got together and said, now we have 18 elephants. This is perfect. The oldest boy said, I get nine, half of those 18. I get nine elephants. And the middle boy says, well, 
I get a third of 18, that would be six elephants, right? And the third boy, the youngest boy, says, well, this works out just fine because a ninth of 18 elephants is two elephants. So it worked out perfectly. Um, you get nine, that's half of 18. The middle boy gets six, that's a third of 18. And the youngest son gets two, which is a ninth of 18. But nine and six and two adds up to 17. And so the neighbor takes the 18th elephant and goes home. Now, this is puzzling. And if you want to play around with this math, I give you a little secret. If you if you turn those uh, fractions into decimals, like a half is 0.5 and a third is 0.33 and a ninth is 0.111 and add those up, you'll understand why the 18th elephant was unnecessary. So here is a case of, how should we say, something that doesn't really exist and yet needs to be the 18th elephant. And so the argument in esoteric philosophy or in mysticism or in Eastern philosophy is that physical reality is like the 18th elephant. It's not real. It's essentially an illusion. It's a figment of our consciousness or awareness. It's real enough to trick us and fool us and have us dedicate ourselves to the acquisition of goodies of stuff, right? And to fight and argue and, and even wage wars for the power and the products, the goods and services of something that's essentially a dream, that 18th elephant. And yet it was needed in order to settle the dispute because 17 elephants as I said before, could not be divided in half, in thirds, or in ninths. All you had to do is add the imaginary 18th elephant, solves the problem, you get nine, you get six, you get two, which adds up to 17. But you couldn't have got there by dividing 17 by those numbers. Yeah, it's esoteric, but I think it's cool. I like it a lot. How often do we come to the realization in our lives that what we're struggling over, what's breaking our hearts, what's making life so difficult for us, what's blinding us to meaning, reason, and purpose is the stuff itself without any idea of what it results from, what it is a, a byproduct of, and the purpose of the whole psychodrama, or um, Doreen likes to call it the holodeck. I think that's a pretty good allegory. If you were a Star Trek, uh, uh, the second Star Trek series with, uh, uh, <laughs> I've forgotten his name already, uh, Patrick Stewart, Picard, yeah, <laughs> make it so. Not the one with Kirk and Spark, but Picard. Deanna Troy and Data and that crew. 
They had a holodeck. They had a room you could go in and program to be an alternate reality, a three-dimensional magical space that they could go for rest and relaxation and entertainment. And it was a hologram. Have you ever seen a hologram? Have you ever seen a holograph, a real, a two-dimensional object that appears to be 3D? And the funny thing about it is when you when if you had a hologram on glass and you you or a holograph and you drop it and it breaks into pieces each piece will contain an image of the entire graphic from the unique perspective of that piece michael talbot who i met and had dinner with years and years and years ago wrote a book called the holographic universe michael talbot it's a hologram. It's being projected. Your life is being projected. You're the projector out into the world from the consciousness. Starting with Brahma, or God, this black, shiny, bright, too bright to look at directly, inky blackness, out of which all things rise. The store, number two, where all the images and names and objects and forms and rules of physics the laws of math and science, the nature of the physical elements of the periodic table, and of course our sense of morality and ethics, our values. All of that is an inherent part of consciousness. Third level, sense and sensation, our ability to see, hear, touch, taste, smell. And on the fourth level, the awareness of our thinking, the awareness of our emotional feelings and the awareness of our behavior, our actions in the world. I had a feeling this was about as far as I was going to get, so next week we'll talk about the states through which consciousness expresses itself. Okay. Um, we will pick up on a discussion we had a few months ago about brainwaves and compare brainwave states, the beta, alpha, theta, and delta brainwave states to these levels of consciousness as perceived by the truly ancient uh, rishis and adepts of uh, time out of mind from before there was even written language. This material was known and understood by a handful of women and men. So we'll do the states of consciousness next week, okay? So levels of consciousness.